Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Mark chapter 4 and verse 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And in chapter 5 verse 7, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Verse 28, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. You may be seated. My name is Stephen. I'm on the, I'm the teaching team here and just like to welcome all of you. I, I am truly humbled that I am blessed to do this and there's nothing that I love more than, than opening God's word and and teaching and, and sharing with you. Um, one thing that makes this easy, it really does, is by the time you have sung and praised, you have already sung my message. And so really, just quick, for Jarrell and Bailey who planned this, for you to sing and praise the sermon every week, and for the praise team that executes it, that execute it just... Literally, hats off. We'll give you a round of applause. Seriously. They're well planned and thought out, and glory be to God. So as we're walking in this series, the path of the king through the gospel of Mark, I think it's been pretty evident by now that Jesus is famous beyond belief. And he's facing a lot of opposition. People hate him for it. The people that had power and influence before him, they can't stand that they're losing that power and influence, and they hate him, and they're going to figure out a way to kill him. And so as he's famous and he's walking, it leads us into these, these four miracles that are one at the end of Mark 4 and the other three in Mark 5. We looked at one last week, and, and I'll read this passage. It says this, And when they were filled with great fear, remember that, it's important today, and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? If you remember from last week, Brad told you these aren't like inexperienced fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Like they know what they're doing. Like they've been through storms. They've weathered storms before. It's not anything new, but this must have been a pretty powerful storm because they were weird. They were worried. They were, they were afraid. And just like that, Jesus speaks, be calm. And they're like, who is this? These are already his disciples. Like they've been spending time with him. They've seen miracles, but they haven't seen anything like this. And that was the story from last week. And if you see that story took place, and you'll see up here a map of the Sea of Galilee and where it's taking place. They're moving from the west side to the east side of the Sea of Galilee while this is taking place. And so the first story in chapter 5 is when they arrive on that eastern coast. And this is what, it's, what it says. It says in verse 5, it says, and when he. Like, well, who's he? There's a demoniac. So imagine a maniac who has demons. He's a demoniac. He's out of his mind. He's oppressed with multiple demons. 
He approaches the boat. As soon as they get there, he's been living among the cemetery, among the tombs. He's been cutting himself. They've tried to bind him. He's broken every, every bound that they could put on him. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. But he comes to Jesus, and this is what he says. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. No one can bind him, but he sees Jesus and immediately falls down before him. Remember that. Remember he fell down before him. We're going to see it a couple more times today. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Now, he had never met Jesus, but the demons living inside of him, they knew exactly who he was. And what a crazy story. I mean, if you go on to read it, and we're just kind of going to do a flyover today. But if you want to dig into that story sometime, we're going we're gonna to park in the second two miracles of chapter 5. What's crazy is they're like, let us just stay in this country. You're like, why would demons want to stay in a particular location? We don't know everything. But if you read the last chapters of Daniel, you'll learn that demons are assigned specific geographical locations, whether it's countries or states. What? Yeah, the spirit world is so much more organized and grand than we give it credit for sometimes. But they said, please, just let us stay in the country. And he said, okay. So they went, they literally, he cast the demons out of this man, and they went, and they went into a herd of pigs, and all of these hundreds of pigs ran down the hill and drowned in the, in the water. Crazy story. And then you got to figure, if 200 pigs are going to get killed, there's some people that own them that aren't going to be too happy. There's going to be a ruckus. There's going to be some noise. They were not happy about what Jesus did. So they're trying to get him to leave their country. And this guy goes and tells everybody what Jesus did for him, that he cast out all the demons. Crazy story. And so as we come back from Garcia, where he went, and Decapolis to cast those demons out, we come back. So we went from west to east, and he goes back from east back across the Sea of Galilee for these two miracles and you'll see it up there. So what's the context? Now, listen, the, all of the context in Mark comes from this, but especially these miracles, you have to remember, this is the context. The kingdom is at hand. Like a new day. Like God said, I haven't changed. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the way I operate, the way I intercede in the affairs of men is going to change in the form of Jesus Christ. I'm going to come in human form. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And it's going to be a new day. And it's really honestly hard to explain. And if you're new to your Bible, listen, those of us seasoned that have, that have read and studied a lot, explaining the kingdom is not just easy. But this is probably one of the best illustrations I've heard. A couple weeks ago, you'll remember, I recommended a book, Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, an amazing Christian philosopher. Well, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, he recalls he grew up just a few miles north of here in Buffalo. And he recalls that when he was in high school, which is early 1950s, that he just got electricity on their family farm. Now, the, the Rural Electrification Act was like 1936. <laughs> it took like 15 years to get to rural Missouri so that farms could have electricity. And he just remembers that day, and this is what he says about it. He said, it was a very different way of living presented itself. Can you imagine? And I, just even preparing for this, I thought, okay, what would my life be like? So driving down the road, pulling my driveway, hit the clicker to open the garage door. Well, 
That doesn't work. So I get out and raise the garage door like the old school. Some of you actually remember that. And so you raise the garage door, pull in, go in, flip on the, oh, no, you can't do that. So I guess I just get a lighter and start lighting some candles if it's nighttime or getting dark. And I just went back through the last, like, week, and I thought, life would be so different. Like, I, like a week ago, Natalia rented, like, one of the, uh, the mobile carpet cleaners. And so, like, we cleaned the carpets. And by when I say we, I mean, like, she did it, and I watched. I supervised. It was just usual. And so she's cleaning it, and I thought, how, how would you even do this in the old days? I mean, I've seen people, like, throw rugs over something, and they beat it out. But, like, how would you actually wash it? And I thought, well, you just go get... Your power sprayer. No, well, you couldn't get the power sprayer. Can you imagine life? Like my great-grandparents, I can't fathom life. My grandma actually went to school up in Dade County in a horse and a buggy. It's insane just thinking about it. You know what? It's a whole different way of living. Jesus shows up on the scene. He said, it's all different. There's going to be some similarities, but it's a new day. I'm inaugurating the kingdom. I'm bringing the kingdom. And that's the context of these miracles. You'll see why is that. This is a good quote from Craig Keener, who wrote two massive volumes on miracles. If you ever want to dig in, amazing work. His miracles were a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. Or a rule. The rule of God. I love this. They were a taste of the future when healing will be complete. These signs were a prelude to the entire restoration when God will make a new heaven and a new earth. They remind us that a day is coming when there will be no more suffering and pain. Listen, did he want to benefit the people he was healing? No doubt. That isn't the point. The point was there's a new day and I'm going to give you a glimpse and a foretaste of what the kingdom will be like. And they got to witness that. That's what the miracles were. They were little pinpoints that God interacted in history and said, I want to show you what I'm going to do to restore a sinful creation back to the way I want it. So we throw around the word miracles just in our everyday language and use it as idioms and certain things. And like, like I thought about like in the 80s whenever the U.S. beat the Soviet Union and we call it the miracle on ice when we beat them in hockey. And, eh, we can use the word miracle, but that's not what we're talking about here. So what is a gospel definition? What is an explanation of a miracle? This is Professor Dr. Richard Pertill, and this is what he says, and this is so accurate. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is temporary. It's a temporary exemption to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. God says, I am going to do things because I am creator. I control creation. I'm going to do these things. And you'll notice in, in, these, four, uh, in these four miracles, he has power over nature over the spirit world, over chronic disease, and over death. He says, I am powerful over all of it. He's showing his messianic authority. And for some of you guys, you were like, man, he came out and only read four verses. That's kind of unusual. Well, here we go, 21 verses. Let's do it. Middle of chapter 5, verse 21. You're going to see one miracle, and you're going to see another miracle sandwiched in between. So two miracles. 
And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. I just thought about this. Getting famous has to get old. By now, he, in his flesh, he just has to be sick and tired of the crowds. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, wait. If you know anything about the synagogue at this point, do you think the people that worked and lived around the synagogue, are they for Jesus or are they anti-Jesus? They're anti. They don't like him. He's starting to steal their power and their influence. These are the religious elite that have started plotting to kill him. So remember that. There's a ruler of the synagogue who maybe himself, but at least the people around him, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. This ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. You remember that? What did the demoniac do? He fell at his feet, and we're going to see it again. Don't forget that, because this is the posture of faith. Whether it's saving faith, sanctifying faith. Listen, when we believe in God, when we, have, when we trust him, when we have faith in him, it is humility that brings us before creator. He's big, we are small. That's humility. It's a posture of faith. My little daughter is at the point of death. Now listen, even if you're not a parent in here, you can understand, like somebody's dying. Those of us that are parents, we're like, there is, I don't think, anything more painful in this planet than a children, than a child suffering or dying. I can't imagine. I've known people that have gone through it. I can't fathom what he's going through. And he comes to Jesus. He knows it's the option. He's heard about him. He knows he can heal her. He says, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that, he may, so that she may be well and live. And he went with them. So they start this journey to the house. And then all of a sudden, there's this sandwiched miracle in here. And a great followed him. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, for some of you, you've been there. Maybe a bad diagnosis or something that couldn't be diagnosed. And it is, you've spent thousands. I can't imagine these two stories. The pain and the sorrow. But they know where to go, don't they? They have hope. Somebody that's doing miracles that can make this better. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, how in the world do you know someone touched you? You see the crowd pressing around you. You say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And what did she do? She fell down before him. Because it's the posture of faith, humility. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What healed her? Jesus healed her. What did he say? Your faith has made you well. We're going to talk about faith a lot today. The posture of faith coming and falling before him. 
And that's her story. And while he was yet still speaking, he picks up the first story of Jairus' daughter. There came from the ruler's house someone that said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler's synagogue, Notice this. Do not fear. Only believe. You know, the most common command in the Bible is do not fear. Why in the world does he tell humans that he loves so many times, don't fear? Because we fear, don't we? It's faith that will overcome the fear. Do not fear, only believe. Trust me, have faith. And he allowed no one. Now, you remember as Brad says, put this in your back pocket, this next verse. He allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So only the three, the inner circle. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him and put them all outside. Can you just imagine? I had to, I don't know. If I was Jesus, that would make me feel good. Oh, you don't believe me? Oh, you're laughing and mocking me? How about you wait outside? Just put yourself in these stories sometimes. It's amazing. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those that were with them and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus, just showing a little glimpse of what the future would be like. No pain, no tears, no death. The main thing that I want you to walk out of here with today is this. Faith over fear. Faith in my life has to prevail. It has to rule over fear. There's so many things to be fearful of. Be anxious for nothing. There's so many commands. Just to don't, don't fear. So many things that we, 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 are, we are scared of what we know, and we're also scared of what we don't know. We just, we're a fearful people. And he says faith to overcome that. When I was preparing for this, I thought there were four truths from these miracle stories that I think we should live by. And not only should we live by them, we should teach the people we have influence over. So whether our children, whether the disciples, people we're mentoring, people that we have influence over, these are the things that we need to teach from these four miracles, four truths. Number one, there's more to reality than just what you see. See, we love to just think we have a pretty firm grasp on reality and like kind of we understand what's going on around us. So we march around in life like, oh, I've got this kind of figured out. And if we don't have something figured out, well, we pray for, oh, we got it figured out. And little do we know, walking around by sight, we like kind of have a grasp on maybe 50% of reality because there's this whole spirit world going on around us that we, we can't see. Sometimes we see the effects of it. It's like John talking about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you can see the effects of the wind, but it's not like you see the wind. This whole spirit world around us that's going on, this battle, this war for the control of our soul. And yet we just kind of think we have it figured out sometimes. And well, I, when you walk through this world by sight and by reason, you will have a painful, painful existence because you'll never be able to fear, figure this world out. And this is why. Because false perception, false perception of reality, it leads to disillusionment. 
You'll be disillusioned because you won't be able to figure some things out. It won't make sense. You, people that say that they walk through in a naturalistic, relativistic mindset, oh, I just don't believe things that I just can't touch. And That's a lie. I do truly believe that everyone believes in metaphysical things. They just don't like to believe in the supernatural because if there's supernatural things, there has to be a, a super, a God that has control over nature. And like I say so many times, people like to do what they want to do when they want to do it, right? So if there is a God that can break through and have control over things that no one else can, then we have to be subject to him. And some people just don't like to be subject to him. And you walk through and you say false perception, just disillusionment, disillusionment. Reality includes the unseen world. Think in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 7. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And he tells you that's how you're supposed to live. But in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, guess what Paul's talking about? He's like, I'm so sick of this, this earthly temple, this body. I can't wait until it gets ripped off and I get my heavenly one. You can't either. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. Like, I'm, I'm tired of it. It's, it's old. Sin nature. It's old. He says, I can't wait till I get a glorified body, a new body. But until then, walk by faith, not by sight. But until then, he said, I've seen the foretaste. I've seen the prelude to the kingdom. He said, oh, it's going to be amazing. Just wait. There's more to reality than just what you see. We have to teach our children. We have to teach the next generation to walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't mean you have to be ignorant and you never use reason. You never use logic. God gave us those things. But we walk by faith. Number two is stop fearing what others think of you regarding you following Jesus. We just like to know what other people think about us. And we like to live accordingly, don't we? Any other people pleasers? Any other people that let other people determine how you follow Jesus or not follow Jesus? He says, you just can't. Think about the ruler of the synagogue. He might have had that mindset, but when he desperately needed someone, he went to Jesus because he was the only one that could raise his daughter. Listen, there are so many things that we encounter in life. Jesus is the only one He's the only one that can heal. We don't want to be viewed as intolerant or ignorant. We don't want to seem unsophisticated. You know you will. More and more every day, you will be viewed as intolerant and ignorant and unsophisticated. What will matter more, the Jesus that can heal or appeasing a world that says you're crazy? In fact, you look at this and you think, I wonder why so many even people that in the past of theologians or, or scholars that call themselves Christians, they don't believe in miracles. Well, first of all, they're not Christians. Well, that's harsh. If you don't believe in a resurrection, you can't be a Christian, a true Christ follower. The resurrection was the miracle of Jesus Christ dying and raising from the dead that gives newness of life. Hope you understand that. So those of you that have studied philosophy and you like to read, you would recognize the name John Hume, an English philosopher who wrote a treatise on why miracles can't be true. And so many scholars, even biblical scholars and what we 
used to think of as good schools and good, good programs, grabbed onto that and said, yeah, yeah, you don't have to believe in miracles to believe in Jesus. Because miracles just can't be true. Which is sad because even philosophers that came after him that didn't believe in Jesus said, that's not even a good logical argument. But because Hume wrote this, so many people grabbed onto it and said, miracles can't be true because they wanted to live how they wanted to live when they wanted to live that way because otherwise you had to follow the God who can intervene and do miracles. So they acquiesced to what people around them were influencers. There's more to reality than just what you see. We have to stop fearing what others think regarding us following Jesus. And the next one, three, God is able, but not obligated, to perform miracles. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was like back in like Jesus walking around and you got to come here this morning and like on a normal Sunday, Brad's like, you're healed and like you rise up and walk. And listen, do I think miracles happen today? No doubt. It's not the same as when Jesus was walking around. How do we know that? Because there would be no people with illnesses or life-threatening injuries. Why? Because we would just heal them. God is able, but he's not obligated to perform miracles. False expectations, they lead to disappointment. You talk to people that have been disappointed with God. Was it because God doesn't love them? No. They had expectations that God might do something for them or bless them in a certain way, and it didn't happen, and all of a sudden they got disappointed. And so they thought, well, I guess God just doesn't love me if he doesn't come through. Why? It's so backwards, because they expect God to acquiesce and to obey them and to make his plans according to their will rather than the other way around. We're all guilty, are we not? We love it when we are blessed We hate to go through suffering. It's not fun. No one enjoys it. No one enjoys going through the hard things when we pray for a miracle and it doesn't come true. But I would bet just about everybody in here, either you or someone you know, there has been, you've seen God working miracles still on this planet today. Listen, if you haven't, come talk to me. I'll give you some some information, some places to listen, some things to read, some people to talk to. God is still working miracles, but he's not obligated to. Number four, The healing that we need is spiritual from sin, not physical from illness. Now, none of us want to be ill. None of us want to die, but we will. We're all going to get ill. We're all going to die, and that scares us sometimes. But you know what is so much more devastating and so much more destructive and so much more dreadful and so much more just absolutely devastating is the power of sin the power of sin, we forget sometimes. I read this a long time ago and it hit home and for some reason it just like, the Holy Spirit just put it into my brain for this message. So most of you have heard of William Wilberforce, the most famous uh, British abolitionist, anti-slavery. And he had made great steps for abolishing slavery in England. Well, his son, in 1848, Samuel Wilberforce, stood before the House of Lords, and he said this phrase during a speech, cheap sugar means cheap slaves. Cheap sugar means cheap slaves. See, there are a bunch of British people that love to have tea, love to have the little 
the little, the little biscuits. We call them cookies. They're wrong. And they love to have their sugar. Well, to have sugar cheap because it was a delicacy, it was extravagant, it meant that you had to have cheap slaves. So they would trade cheap sugar for treating someone inhumanely. And I guarantee you there were aristocrat people in England that said, I'm a Christian and just thought I would rather have cheap sugar than to have that person living humane. And it's just incomprehensible. We think, well, I'm sure glad that we're more sophisticated and advanced and we do me a favor real quick. Everybody get yours out. I want to see him. Get it out. If you have to dig, dig. I want to see him. Everybody. Hi. Raise him up. Raise him up. Okay. No, don't hold me to this. I'm going to quantify it as easily as I can. If you are on that side, my right, your left, of this section going all the way back, put your phone down. Everybody else, keep them up. Some people aren't participating, but you know everybody's got one. You can put them down. So a journalist named Siddhar Kara just wrote, I think it was his second or his third book, called Cobalt Red. In order to have your rechargeable lithium battery in your phone, it takes it cobalt. 70% of the phones come off the back of Congolese slave children. Now listen, it's not to guilt you. I'm telling you the power of deception and destruction of sin. I guarantee you if all the Christians in the world tomorrow said no more, that's a big enough piece of the market share for them to make changes. But will we? Because what I found is big things like that are in my heart. Because there'll be sin and I'm like, well, what are you going to do? Anybody else? Even this week, you just, you sin and you think, oh, is it really that big of a deal? And sin is just so deceiving because what does sin lead to? Death. Not just physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. See, we don't fear the first death because we're born twice. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice, physically and spiritually. That's why being born again is essential to living forever with God. It's because we only fear. We don't fear death. There's no death coming to us other than physical death. It's fleeting. It's nothing. The big sins like that of unjust, inhumane, murderous conditions, they're alive and well in our heart. Some of you that maybe are a little newer to the Bible, maybe some of you have never heard it explained like this, you always have to know that it, the power of sin, that God wants to break that. He wants to break it. And the way he does that is, in many ways, one of the words that we use around church a lot is sanctification. It's a big word. sounds theological. It's really, really, really simple. Sanctify, sanctification means to separate from sin, take something from sin, to God. Now listen, some of you, if you've been born again, you've been saved, you've been made righteous, 
You never, ever, ever have to answer for the penalty of your sin because you've been sanctified. Past sanctification means that time where you said, he's my Lord and Savior, I follow him, I'll go anywhere. Jesus is Lord. He he took you from the penalty of sin unto himself. You never have to answer for that. Your sin is done. The reason he did that, he loves you and he wants you to be here. One of these days, like Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, we're out of here. This earthly human temple, gone. Spiritual body. Our eternal bodies. We no longer have to deal with the presence of sin. We've been sanctified from the presence of sin unto God forever. Man, can't wait. This is the tough one. This is the sanctification that he's doing on us right now. The pruning, the cutting, the carving, the being conformed to the image of Jesus. He wants to take you from the power of sin that's still in you. And he wants you for himself. He wants to sanctify you from the power of sin unto himself so that we can look like Jesus and change this world and build his kingdom. The power of sin, he always wants to break it and he does it through miracles. It's always miraculous. It's supernatural. You don't do it. It's not like mind over matter. He does it in supernatural ways. The two things that I want you just to walk out of here with today are these. Faith over fear. Okay, Stephen, faith over fear. But I want to ask you if you'll take just steps to increase your faith. Yeah, I'm in. What are, what, increase your faith so that you can be less fearful and more faithful to God. Increase your faith, time and prayer with God is the first one. Time in prayer with God. Just praying to him, talking to him. That's all he wants. You're like, I don't know how to pray. Start reading Psalms. Listen to how David and the other psalmists pray and just start, just start doing what they did. Super simple. Just, well, I sometimes am angry. Okay. David was too. I'm super frustrated. David was too. I'm so tired of being persecuted by the world in the spirit world. David was too. And then every time that he would throw out and just make supplication before God, how do the Psalms end? God restoring him, God taking care of him, him listening to him, and David being the better for going before God in prayer. But I think about this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, and, and going on into Hebrews eleven six. 6, it says, let us draw near. Listen, you'll see that over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. That is you coming before his throne of grace in prayer. That's you coming before him. Let you draw near. He wants us near him. You understand how desperately he wants you near to him? He loves us so much. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards them who seek him. Coming before him in prayer. Just praying, spending time in prayer. We can think of a lot of things to do when it comes to avoiding prayer, can't we? 
can't we? And listen, not only is it setting time aside to pray, but it's pray without ceasing. You wake up in the morning, it's like, I remember this, one of my elders in Maine, he was so good, he was an old, wise man. He just said, in the morning, it's like I pick up the phone and put it to my ear, and it's me and God until I go to sleep, and then it hangs up. It's so true, pray without ceasing. But there are times when you separate yourself, like Jesus did, and just pray. It increases our faith, it ignites it, initiates it. Increasing your faith in time of prayer. I might have told you the guys this, this story before. It's near and dear to me. So, I don't know, I was like eight or nine years old. My mom, when, honestly, one of the most godly women I've... She was praying over my life out loud. And this wasn't like uncommon. It wasn't like super common, but it wasn't uncommon for me to hear her praying. I knew she prayed all the time. But for her to hear her praying over my life out loud, like audibly. And I remember her praying 2 Timothy 2.15 over my life. Just, I can just remember it like I was there. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling or dividing the word of truth. And just so coincidentally, in between my junior and senior year of high school, I fell in love with this book. It was supernatural. Parents, please, please hear me out. Pray the word of God over your child's life and let them hear you. Let them know exactly where you stand, what you want for them. Tell them. Tell them that you want them to be godly and the things that you want for them. And whenever things come up and they make a bad grade or whatever, keep in perspective. It's just not a big deal. Pray what you want for their life in the big scheme of the kingdom. Pray that you want them to follow Jesus. It's supernatural power. My mom harnessed what God wanted to give her and gave it to me just by praying over my life. Increasing your faith by prayer and in God's word. You remember when I told you to put it in your back pocket? Who did he say, hey, All of you, you you can stay outside. But he said, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, come with me. I'm going to let you see me heal this little girl from death to life. There was another time, and it's coming a few chapters later in Mark, and we'll get there in chapter 9. He says, Peter, James, John, hey, come with me. I've got something to show you. And it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes them up on a mountain, and Jesus turns into his glorified body. And there's Elijah and Moses in their glorified bodies. And you've got to be kidding me. If you were Peter, James, and John, like, just think about being them. You'd be like, what is going on here? This is, like, are we in heaven? They got to experience that. And some years later, you know what Peter wrote? He said, this book is a more sure prophetic word than what I saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. This book is more sure than what I saw. And we hold this miraculous, living, supernatural book in our hands, and sometimes we dare tell God, I know you've given me prayer, and I know you've given me this book, but can I have another? Something else. Can you do something else miraculous? And I have to wonder if he just looks at us and goes, 
but you don't even care that I've given you miracles. This is a miracle. It's supernatural power. This, when people hear this, the Holy Spirit takes it and he turns people in to spiritual beings for eternity. Do you hear me? The Spirit comes alive in us and we were dead in our sin and all of a sudden, eternal life comes into us and we live with him forever. He takes what was dead and he makes it alive. That's supernatural. That's a miracle. And listen, you've got to memorize it. You've got to meditate on it. And when I say memorize it, I know how it sounds. I know like, like the little kids growing up in church, we have a memorized verses and like we kind of grow out of it. And I don't know why we do that. We should always be memorizing. And this is something maybe for some of you city group leaders. Our city group has started to to memorize scripture together. Now, hear me out on that, and I'm not bragging. I think right now I'd be generous with a C plus. All right? So listen, we're, we're working at it. Everybody in our city group picked a verse that was meaningful to them, that because of some sin in their life, they needed to memorize so that they could conquer that sin. And we all put it on a spreadsheet, and now we, like one a week is what our goal was. We're working on one every three weeks. It's fine. We're moving forward. We're getting there. We're memorizing scripture together. That might be something that you can do together to put God's word in your heart so that you won't sin against him, like David says. There's so many creative ways. Are you spending time in the miraculous book that he gave you, memorizing it and meditating on it? Listen, so those of you that know, you know. And I'm not stupid. Those of you that don't know, you don't know. When you apply your energy and your time and your passion into prayer and getting in this book, you will see miraculous changes in your life that you never thought were possible. Defeating sin, living in abundance, telling people about it, like, it's supernatural. I want each and every one of you to walk out of here today going, faith over fear, faith over fear, increasing your faith. But why do we do that? Increasing your faith so that you can invest your faith. So other people can have a better life because of you. They can have eternal life because of you. Like Sam Bankman-Fried, the Silicon Valley Bank. Is there really anything secure and sure in this life? Ask the people that lost millions and billions. They would tell you, well, we didn't think that was possible. Well, the stock market, hmm? My grandma that I spoke of earlier had to go live with her grandparents because her parents couldn't afford her after the stock market crash in the 20s. They would have told you, no. I will tell you something that you can invest in that is sure. It will always, always have benefits. There will always be eternal benefits. Taking your prayer time in the word of God and investing it in other people Listen, every time you walk into this building, you see it on that wall, you see it on the screen in here. Together, we love God, we love others, and we make disciples of Jesus Christ. Listen, whose life today, like if you had to write the name down, or names, whose life is better off spiritually because of you? I pray, I love you, we love you. Listen, From a shepherd's heart, I want all of you 
to increase your faith, but not just for you. It's always been blessed to be a blessing so that you walk and you invest your faith in other people. Invest it. And some of you are like, ah, I I don't know if that's me. Listen, truly, you're probably wrong, but maybe you're at a point in your life where you need someone to invest in you so that you can have the vision of doing that in someone else's life. Some of you are there. And listen, you're in a great place because there's a bunch of people here that want to help you increase your faith and invest it. Let's pray.